welcome to episode three of Let's Talk Sailing podcast. How are you? Very good, thanks, mate. Really looking forward to this one. Yeah. This, what are we in? What are we in for? We we're going a bit off uh, off piste here. We um, we're speaking to two industry insiders to get an insight onto what's what's happening in the marine industry, how um, businesses are coping with with the knock-on effects of the coronavirus. So this evening we're talking to Dan Jaspers from RS Sailing and Lauren Mead from Team O. So let's uh, speak to them now. Let's welcome them in. Okay, first of all, let's welcome Lauren Mead, Director of Sales and Marketing for Team O Marine. Good evening, Lauren. Thank you for joining us. Hi there. Yeah, good to see you. And we also got Dan Jaspers, and who heads up international business for RS Sailing. Good evening, Dan. Good evening, Mitch. Hi. Good evening, both. Uh, Lauren, if I could just start you off with with Timo, and if you could just give us a bit of background on Timo, please. Yeah, sure. Um, so Timo is a life jacket business. Um, we're based in the UK down in Southampton um, and it was originally a family business. Um, my brother and I are both sailors and a few years back some of your members might have heard there was an accident that happened during one of the weekend races um, back in 2012 this is. It was um, I think it was the Morgan Cup race and it was a really windy awful night and one of the competitors had an accident during the course of the race where he was the skipper and he went forward to check on the sails um, and he had a life jacket and a tether and he was clipped on doing all the right things but because the weather was really gnarly he slipped over the side through the guard wire and he ended up being dragged face down next to his own boat. And the crew actually knew he was there, so they obviously went straight into their process of stopping the boat, um, but they actually couldn't rescue him in time. By the time they dropped the sails and got back, got stopped basically, it was too late and they couldn't get him back on board. Um, so I wasn't on that boat, but I was in that race. I was on another boat nearby and we heard the whole thing on the VHF and uh, it was really shocking for all of us, I mean, for everyone in that race, you know, everyone came in the next day, just really shell-shocked. And um, I went home and I told my brother about it. He's a product designer and a solo sailor in his own right. And um, he said, well, that's ridiculous. You know, life jackets in that scenario should turn you face up. Still keep you tethered on, but turn you face up so that you're next to the boat, but you can breathe, obviously. Um, and we realized that none of the other life jacket businesses had done it. And that was kind of the catalyst. We started the business and seven years later, or wherever we are, eight years later, uh, we're selling life jackets and all sorts of life jacket accessories uh, from our office in Southampton. Fantastic. And certainly that was a horrendous race. I was in that race as well. So uh, that was, yeah, it was a, yeah, I was on there, the Fast 40 Magnum. Ah, okay. So I, was, I was on the DK46 yeah. Dark and Steamy. Oh, cool. Yeah. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Southampton and uh, Cow is such a small place in the sailing community. I love that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, certainly a horrendous, horrendous uh, night at sea. Um, okay, that's really interesting. And then from there on, obviously, that your main technology has been to write somebody. That's yeah. obviously brand new to the market as well. Um, yeah. how, how, how is that being uh, taken so far? How, how have people adapted to that? Um, positive. Yeah, I have to say it's been a bit of a journey. Um, once we did the original product designs, we went and showed it um, to a patent lawyer, first of all, to be honest, and then we went and showed it to um, a bunch of other life jackets companies because we thought it was just such a no-brainer that surely everybody would want to do this. Uh, and actually, that was absolutely not the case. I think that we were kind of coming into it as two kids who were sailors, but we didn't have a 
business background. We didn't really have any standing in the industry commercially anyway. And um, and so I think the other life jacket businesses just thought, you know, yeah, this, this isn't a big problem or something. So we kind of went away and then it happened again and it happened again. And there were, there were kind of more and more instances where this was coming up. Um, and that's kind of what really gave us the motivation to push through the testing and made us decide that actually we have to start the business ourselves. Um, Obviously, it's very expensive to test a safety product, so you have to really want to get it to market. But we were, you know, absolutely convinced that this was just the right thing to do. Fantastic! And the whole process of that, in terms of supporting uh, yourselves with with finance and everything, that's that's obviously something that is is, is very difficult to to put together. Yeah. Yeah, I, we started off at the beginning um, with a small budget, um, which was from family and from personal savings. Um, and we blew through that in no time. It's a bit like, I think, doing up a house or something, you know, it always comes in way over budget. Um, that covers we, the patents, right? Yeah, oh, patents in their own right are just phenomenally expensive. Um, but um, so we, we got going that way. And then after about 18 months, we realized that actually we needed um, proper capital to do this. So we actually crowdfunded the business um, on Crowdcube in 2018. And as part of that, we had just under 200 investors join the business um, because they all believed in the design as well. Um, and that facilitated us opening um, a factory in Southampton, which is actually where I'm sitting um, at the moment. So we moved all of our production. Uh, we initially started off doing production in the Far East because that's just what the industry does. And we thought that that was kind of the norm. And then we realized that actually we could make them in the UK, which would give us far better quality control and would just let us have more control of every element of the production process. So yeah, we make them in that end of the building and management's in that end of the building. So it's- um, and, and product under one roof. You don't see that much anymore. That's amazing. Yeah, you really don't. Um, and also just finding people in the Southampton area who've got the right skills. You know, we're as a city, it's got such great history when it comes to making anything and everything. I mean, you know, ships were made here in the time of Henry VIII. It's got great maritime history, but actually all of that's died out in the last few years. So when we were like, right, we're gonna, we need people who know how to sew, we know, you know, technical sewing, it's, it's a very complicated process. Um, even just finding people with those skills are quite tricky, but they are here, but you just have to look. Fantastic. Excellent. And, uh, Can I Dan, jump? I'm going to. Oh, sorry, I was just going to. Sorry, just to sort of finish. Um, what what have been the highlights for for Timo as a, as a startup? Have there been? Um, I, I know there's been some awards and um, some pictures on on the front of newspapers. So can you just yeah. let us know about that? <laughs> um, Crowdcube was a highlight, but probably the the obvious highlight that jumps out was last. Uh, summer, the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge wore our life jackets for their new King's Cup regatta, uh, which was a big surprise for us, to be honest. Um, we didn't even know until the moment that they stepped on the boats that they were definitely going to be wearing them. Um, and as, I mean, wherever the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge go, they're obviously hounded by press. So as soon as they got onto the boat, photos started going up online and people started messaging us and saying, they're wearing your life jacket. And um, that was a unbelievable feeling actually and we got everybody from production through to the office and like hey look at this and i think people were quite emotional actually yeah that's uh that's something to be proud of definitely and um right dan rs sailing um one of the widest range of of small sailboats on the market but um nonetheless still from a family business kind of attitude to 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 going about things yeah, uh, definitely. Um, there's quite a lot of similarities between 
our company and what uh, what Lauren was talking about just now in terms of how it sort of started, not necessarily the safety side of things, um, but as a small concern, um, the founders originally 25 years ago um, were dealing in wetsuits and selling things out of the back of a van, much like other companies in the industry originated. Um, uh, and there was a need for racing boats um, and the team decided to start buying the, the patents for uh, production of racing boats in the UK, uh, things like the B14, various kind of early racing boats, and then went into building them, the RS400, RS600, a number of the RS number brands, the, the 200, the 500 and stuff like that came later. Um, and about 15 years ago, um, thereabouts, it was kind of important through the RYA scheme in the UK that there were also training boats available. So not just racing boats, but a complementary range of boats to suit the more recreational market uh, and the learn to sail side of the sport. Um, and that's when the advent of rotor molded plastic um, boat building technology was kind of coming into its own. We'd had injection molding for a while with boats like the Topper that had been around, um, but rotor molding uh, enabled the industry to really move forward and try things new and RS was spearheading that. Um, and that grew 25 years later to have a range of 20 boats um, with a real good balance between junior and youth single double-handed plastic rotor molded boats right up to 21 foot keel boats for racing and everything in between single-handed skiffs single trapeze asymmetric boats and um, double-handed cats um, and last year we added an electric powerboat um, to the range which was a bit of a departure from sailboats but um, the sustainability side of things is crucial for us and a, a bit like the kind of company values that I'm sure Lauren and um, and her brother Oscar share, um, you know, sustainability and working practices, a company that puts back into the industry and back into its customers. That's something that drives RS forward all the time. It's not just selling boats. Uh, we call ourselves the brand of participation for a reason um, because we like to think we get people into the sport. Um, the commercial side of things is obviously uh, important for a company to stay strong, um, but we we have long since got away from um, making apologies for being a commercial company because we reinvest a lot of that um, profit into looking after the class associations with the racing, um, for the Terra, the Fever, the Aero, the 500, the 100, the various other boats that we have, where a lot of money is put into events, encouraging fun, family participation, a lot of international spread. Um, but one of the things that was difficult was growing outside of Europe um, and um, the UK. It's a very Southampton-centric uh, company, much like what Lauren talked about just now, everything's made in the UK. We've dabbled in um, Far East production in terms of Thailand, and we've also gone south to uh, Brazil, South America. We've tried it, uh, it hasn't worked, the quality control just didn't um, happen uh, the way that we wanted it to. So we brought everything back to the UK, we're proud of that. Um, it does have its challenges in terms of international export, um, but we've overcome those over years uh, and we're proud to be a British company um, exporting into over 60 countries. But our distribution network is, uh, has grown slowly because we've wanted to consolidate where we've been strongest. So my job is now to really look at the uh, international distribution network outside of Europe and uh, North America and the UK, which is a huge patch that we call the rest of the world. Um, <laughs> doesn't really have a very, a very concise title, but uh, yeah, it's a, um, a great company, family run. The two guys that di the directors now, when I originally started working for the company donkeys years ago, they were my counterparts um, 
down in the on the shop floor building and um, and fixing boats and now they've taken over from the founders um, and have become shareholders and taken over the CEO roles so everybody in the company that works in the management team has been involved for you know nigh on 25 years of the company and has seen it grow from nothing to what it is now the, the world's largest small boat um, manufacturer I didn't realize there were so many parallels. I mean, you guys are obviously the big fish, but there's, there are. I didn't realize that you guys were based in Southampton as well and had that sort of manufacturing base here. Yeah, yeah, Rom Romsey, so just up the road from you. Okay. Um, a lot of our boats are, are made in Newark, uh, where there's a huge um, rotor molding factory. They make all sorts of other things like kayaks and, and various other rotor molded plastic pieces. I think the sailboats are accounting for probably, I think, it, what is it, like, 15.15% so not much of what they produce but we produce over 3,000 boats a year um, and so you know we are uh, in our industry we're a big fish but that doesn't change the fact that there's a huge competition much like what you face from your competition we, we have three main manufacturers that compete against us and we're always trying yeah. to find what makes us unique um, where we can't patent anything like you've done um, because what we have are just boats and everybody is building just boats and um, we try and make it unique in other ways so there are a lot of parallels and synergies between what you're doing and what we yeah. try to do we want to touch on on the um, impact of of the coronavirus this evening and one of the first questions is obviously looking after um, staff and employees is and protecting general public uh, um, many people working from home but obviously in the marine sector and um, both your businesses are in in manufacture so how have you have you got around that what have you been able to employ so we'll come to Lauren first on a smaller scale yeah sure um, we can you can't make a life jacket from home no it's, it's true um, there's a lot of technical sewing that goes into um, a jacket to make sure that it's really strong and it's going to obviously support you when you need it most. Um, there is some pre-production work where it's like um, simple tacking seams and stuff that you're going to remove later anyway that you can do from home. So actually what we did at the beginning was um, quite a large proportion of our production team um, are in the at-risk category um, or that they are um, They've got young families and that kind of stuff so you know they were keen very early on in the whole coronavirus process to move away from coming into the office um, and we totally understand that um, so actually what we did was a couple of them already had um, work from home sewing um, workshops in their gardens uh, and for everybody else we took sewing machines to their houses um, and so that was a bit of a fun run around just before lockdown started <laughs> we were um, cleaning the machines down putting them into a clean van with gloves taking them into people's houses and then putting them in and, and making sure that there was no cross-contamination and then we had a couple of weeks where we were um, taking pre-prepped uh, sorry I can't speak today fabric panels and delivering them to people's home gates and doing the distance drop off and then picking them back up when they were finished so it wasn't sustainable but it was a way that meant we could keep going for a couple of weeks more than we otherwise would have done um, in the long run we did actually then furlough some of the team for the last couple of weeks but i'm pleased to say they're coming back um, tomorrow so um, we're kind of picking back up now it definitely has been hard and i think that for all small businesses you just you don't always have months and months of runtime left um, in your bank balance at any one time. So you are relying on constant sales, and particularly in the marine industry where we're so seasonal. You know, normally April, end of March, April, the Easter weekend would be the kickoff um, of our season opening here, and so that's not great. I mean, we're 
luckily in quite a good position. Um, we're confident that we can make it through the whole thing, but I've spoken to a lot of other small business owners who say that they either think this is going to send them under or it's going to be really down to the wire. And that you pour your heart and soul into all businesses, but particularly small businesses. And um, if you're a founder, you know, you're wearing a lot of different hats and you live it, live and breathe your business. Um, and to just have it taken away by something that's completely out of your control is, is heartbreaking. So I really feel for a lot of the guys in the marine industry, because I know everybody's hurting at the moment. And um, I think that RS has probably got much the same, but probably 10 times bigger, Dan. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're, uh, we've been selling to the same kind of customer base for 25 years. And so we kind of know who our customers are um, around the world, or at least the demographic of, of the different types of people that buy different types of boats. But I mean, it did take us not by surprise, but it was quite a shock. I mean, the good thing about working in a dynamic industry is that you tend to keep a finger on the pulse as the pulse quickens or slows. Um, and with our network, uh, myself, my European counterpart, Mikhail, um, and our American, my American counterpart, Todd, um, we realized early on that we needed to keep in much, much more regular contact with our dealer and distributor network, um, and also some of our retail customers in countries that didn't have, um, uh, much like Mitch, who's, you know, we don't have a, a massive dealer in, in the UAE, we have a brand ambassador, but keeping in contact with them to find out what was going on. And after the first few weeks of, oh, what is this? What's this going to turn into? Um, it was clear that everything left, right and center was shutting down because we um, two thirds of our businesses with um, large clubs and schools and commercial centers yeah. um, and our dealers are selling a lot more boats to those than they are to um, the private retail buyers um, and so suddenly when we realized that things were going to pretty much shut shop everywhere um, like Mitch put it I think when when Dosk um, the lights are off the bars closed the doors locked um, and the, the boom gates down, uh, that, kind of, that kind of expression we heard time and time again. And so we fed that back up the food chain to, to John and Alex, the CEOs. And they were having daily powwows with the finance department, with the shareholders, with everybody else. And very, very quickly, we identified that we needed to um, streamline everything and bring it down. We have a high, high end six figure monthly sum that we need to pay. Um, because we have over 10,000 parts that go into our range of 20 boats um, and manufacturing facilities with contracts to produce X amount of hulls, X amount of masts, sails, shackles, blocks, ropes, the whole lot. And we couldn't just simply stop receiving that because we've got contracts to supply. So we did furlough in three stages. Um, we were the first small company of our size in the South to receive the um, the grant, the, the government um loan. Uh, we were very fortunate that our finance department was straight on to it. it, was working with the British Marine, uh, sorry, British Marine, not the British Marine Federation, old habits die hard. Um, and we, we liaised with everybody, we jumped on as many Skype calls and Zoom conferences as we could with the industry. Um, and so we, we needed to protect ourselves and we did. When it comes to pr production and manufacturing, we knew what the plastic boats um, side of things could produce because they're not human labor heavy. I mean, it's a giant oven that you basically pop out um, uh, Tupperware boats um, and it's a couple of people monitoring the process and it's mainly automated. The fiberglass um, and the, the sort of epoxy layout boats, um, they're more person to person heavy. So those companies couldn't conform to the government guidelines as well as the plastic rotor molded manufacturers. So we knew that we would be light on fiberglass 
So we took stock, we made sure that we knew what was in our hands, demo boats got recalled, everything got brought back to the building, we did a massive stock take of all of the boats, and we knew what we could sell, so we had a value to put on the stock. Uh, plastic boats we could still ship, so the containerization could be done by a couple of people with the dis social distancing regulations um, applied, and so we kept everybody happy. Deliveries in the UK could be done, because you could dump a boat at someone, bottom of someone's garden and wave at them and yeah. say, any problems, um, Skype us or call us. It wasn't very personal, but they were still delivered, uh, and the handovers were still completed by one man and a van type of thing. So we had money coming in, but the following, because it's such a huge outgoing, it did happen in three stages, and at the moment we're running with probably 85% um, uh, less uh, personnel um, and the office, the parts team is manning the parts store because we have an online chandlery which sells quite a lot of parts worldwide. Then we have the boat side of things, the logistics. So we've got people in kind of the upstairs office, the downstairs office and the warehouse, very socially distant. Um, but thing, the wheels have kept turning and we've kept telling everybody we're open for business um, and we adapted. Um, the scary thing is, or the, the benefit of it all, is that we know now that <laughs> a lot more people can work from home um, than we thought was possible. Suddenly everybody's at home clearing their kitchen desk, setting up a computer, dual screening, headphones, you know, we've added a, a few hundred thousand, um, I mean not hundred thousand, a few thousand to Jeff, Jeff and his Amazon uh, slush funds um, by ordering all these remote working um, uh, computer aids. But we managed it, so I think now in the future when people say I'm working from home, the management are not going to be so um, shocked and surprised and actually will say, yeah, no problem as long as the work gets done. So we've learned a few things along the way, mm. but we've kept the ball, the ball rolling and the wheels turning, so to speak. Yeah, thanks, Dan. Um, thank you, Lauren. You both um, said and sort of you've learned almost the hard way um, due to quality control issues to, to produce um, close to home. Uh, have you had any uh, problems in terms of getting hold of... Um, or materials and your parts. How's the inbound supply chain been? Um, I'll go to Dan first this time. Um, apart from, well, because we buy in big batches, so any of the um, Cebu, you know, Far East sales um, from, uh, from our suppliers, have been bought in a big enough batch and it tends to last quite a long time. We don't buy in small quantities, so that hasn't really been a massive issue. Um, rope packs and stuff like that. We have a UK-based supplier, Kingfisher, um, for 99% of our boats. So they've been all right. Most of the stuff we buy large batches and, and keep in stock. Um, and the materials for the boats are built in the UK. Everything's made in the UK. So we haven't had an issue on... I can't think of any items of stock that we've said to people, we can't get this because of the whole Corona COVID thing. Um, uh, there have been delay on some bespoke items on certain things that manufacturers have needed to make because we've got, a, we do quite a bunch of fancy little cutouts with RS logos in made of carbon and certain bits for certain boats um, that take a bit of time to make. Um, and because those companies were having to slim line down, there was maybe, 10 day extra lead time or something but no long answer to a short question we haven't really had too much felt the pinch from a supply chain point of view how about you lauren um, and, and the guys at timo um, um, any issues 
a little bit, but not nothing major. Um, our most annoying thing is we were supposed to launch a new life jacket um, at the Easter weekend. It's the Timo Micro life jacket. It's absolutely tiny. It's, um, it's I don't know if you can see that behind me, but I'm in our little showroom area. Um, it's this really small life jacket um, for like uh, day sailors and rib drivers. It's, it's tiny. It's 15% lighter than any other life jacket on the market. Um, and this was supposed to launch at the Easter weekend, and we've had to delay that because our um, it's passed all its testing, but the test house is closed, so they won't give us a certificate to sell it. So at the moment, we've got this really cool product, and it's already been in magazines, and we've told loads of people about it, and now people are phoning us and saying, oh, I'd like to buy one of those, please. And like, um, <laughs> so that's quite frustrating. As soon as the test house opens, we'll be getting out there. It's ready to go in every other sense, um, but we just can't. We just can't take the final hurdle until that lifts, um, which at the moment looks like it'll hopefully be a matter of weeks. Um, but obviously, it's a little bit out of our hands. So we're we're being really open about that. And I have to say, anyone who's emailed me asking to buy a micro in the last few weeks, thank you for being so patient and kind about it because everyone's been really understanding. Um, but yeah, that's our that's our big problem. <laughs> and as the um, as the the coronavirus and social distancing, how has it impacted getting products to um, your customers? Uh, do you want to skip me or Dan? Yeah, go, you go first. Um, for us, it's actually not been too difficult because we make on site and we do all the finishing and the packing here. We have a stock room as well um, out the back, and so as orders come in, rather than it being picked and packed by anybody else. Um, my brother and I will be doing that instead. So um, it's very much come back down to us. I think when you're a small business owner, you have done every stage of the process yourself at some point anyway. So we do know how to pack our own stock and so we've just gone back to that. So uh, it's been, you know, that's, that's not that big deal for us. Um, we've had a couple of delays in terms of couriers that have taken extra time and that kind of stuff. but. I am quite amazed actually at the number of people who are still buying life jackets in the middle of the pandemic. Um, and it's, I think it's actually really nice. It's a sign of hope that the summer is going to come back. We're still going to get a sailing season. I, I know some of it is maybe that everyone's stuck inside and doing a little bit of board online shopping, but it's also to do with, you know, we will all be back on the water soon. It's starting to ease here in um, the UK now. I don't know what it's like for you guys yet. Um, the handles slowly opening up. I've seen people sailing dinghy lasers and foxes and that kind of stuff were out last night and earlier on today. And I, I think that the Solent, which has been so quiet since the start of the season, is really going to start filling back up with boats now. So it's just a matter of time. And Dan, I mean, you mentioned earlier your your role is is actually to get RS boats to the rest of the world. I think you said, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure in, in the UK, much the same, you can obviously get get boats to people um one way or another but how's has it been to ship to international customers has that been a challenge well yeah i mean the shipping if there had been orders um or if the the people wanting the boats could have had the boats then um the shipping lines were active uh, the logistics side of things was working uh, some of the companies some of the lines were having slight delays um, just through clearing the backlog of, of customs-related um, stuff on the on the on the dock side, um, but it really everything did shut down. I mean, I'm dealing with um, people in Hong Kong where most of the centres of government run, so you couldn't even kind of go in there if you wanted to as a private person because it's literally an armed guard on the gate. So as soon as stuff started to shut down 
um, and the access for the sailors was denied. Um, New Zealand, for example, at level four of their of their um, lockdown, you know, nothing, nobody, no one allowed. I mean, if you've got a house with a garden that goes down to the water somewhere outside Auckland and you've got a boat, then you're lucky you can go sailing. But if you're someone that is uh, looking for a boat and then you say to the dealer, I'd like to buy a boat, and the dealer says, I have no stock because I've sold all my stock here. I'm waiting for stock from the UK, but I can't get it in because I can't get it to you. So countries started to shut down. Um, Japan, another one that I deal with, one of our bigger dealers, Again, government, every access to every sailing venue was, was government controlled. Um, Brazil, uh, every club mandatory shut down. It wasn't just sort of some guidance by the prime minister saying, please don't go to the club. You know, it was literally, if you go there, there's, there's heavy fines and heavy penalties to pay. So the world did start to shut down. Um, and so a lot of the people I was speaking to said, look, we really want to buy boats, but we can't do it until we open up again. And um, so that was kind of tricky to make sure that we were gauging the level of what people wanted and when they were going to buy. Some have come back and said, look, we can't, we, we, there's no money, we've, we've got no takings, the club, the membership, we've got real struggles. So it's just keeping an eye on that and making sure that, that we know exactly what's, what's coming. Some of it's quite depressing because you had some really big deals that you were looking forward to and we're talking, you know, it's not like an Amazon purchase, you know, Lauren said it's, you know, some people bored browsing online. I wish we could. I mean, one of our boats, the Terra, probably, because we used to set, send it out in a cardboard box that was kind of nine foot by four foot wide, and you'd pay, I think, a hundred pounds extra for um, for the box and then the shipping. You could technically put that in an Amazon storage warehouse and have it picked and packed and shipped out, but the rest of our boats require some fairly chunky sea freight logistics to get them out. Um, uh, so yeah, it was a bit of a nightmare um, and gradually things have opened up. I know New Zealand's opened up now um, in the single-handed capacity, but one of the challenges for us was not being too aggressive in a time where we knew that there were desperate times ahead. We didn't want to be screaming at people saying, buy our boats, here's some crazy offers, look, we're really struggling, you need to give us some money. We were trying to come up with ways of, of making our potential customers see that we were still there. We were sharing lots of things online. We were doing lots of really cool kind of pub quiz style quizzes on social media, um, uh, releasing some really interesting news articles, some blog pieces that were written in a very, very relaxed, you know, from what was it, from flip flops to booties, you know, how you get off the beach and into a boat and into club racing, you know, little stories that were linked to the products. We did some, um, promotions um, on you know like a COVID offer but without calling it a COVID or Corona offer you know some summer offer for single-handed boats and we've really looked at it in a way of saying how do we react to what the people at the clubs can do because we know that some clubs won't allow double-handed or, or mass participation sailing from people outside of the same household for quite a while I mean this phased reintegration is going to take some time in some countries so we're saying there's some offers on single-handed boats because why wouldn't you? I mean, the people can buy, can sail on their own. Um, and so we can sell more of the single-handed one-person boats than we can some of the bigger boats. But it was really tough because we didn't want to come across and really annoy the public um, and our customers by constantly barraging them with buy this, buy that, here's a deal. Because eventually they switch off and say, look, you guys sound desperate. But in the background, you're a small business. Well, we, we employ 20 people, or, you know, 25 people in in a in a, um, a company that sells 3,000 boats a year. But it's still in our industry. It's still relatively um, small. Um, and that I think we we found the balance. And John and Alex and the team and the marketing and 
uh, sales team. We talked every day. We had a conference call every morning to discuss it, um, and it was um, it was really tough to come through. Um, but ultimately, we decided we wanted our customers to feel supported, to feel that we were there for them, and not to just keep forcing them. And I received so many emails marketing other products at me because I was on a database for something else that actually made me unsubscribe from quite a few things. So we took that as an approach that we didn't want our our customers to do the same thing. So again, a long answer, but it's a sort of hopefully shows that there was this sort of emotional and commercial roller coaster of, you know, where do we go? What do we do? How do we, we just kept reevaluating, coming up with another approach, but then looking at what we did with that and not wanting to repeat it or go even harder. Um, yeah. I don't know if that made any sense, but hopefully. Yeah. And I'm just going to pick up on a, a, a trainer conversation that you had there that, is looking forward, so let's let's be positive now. Let's be optimistic. Looking forwards, um, here in the UAE, restrictions are easing very gradually, and um, at the base of it is is social distancing and limiting people in, in confined spaces. So Dan, you picked up on actually the changing the business focus to single handers, um, and and Timo producing a life jacket that is that makes. Um, safety easier and, and is, is easier to get someone on back onto a boat when they do fall off then um yeah both both of you seem well set to, to move forwards but has has the coronavirus and the impact with with restrictions has it uh, prompted any other product diversification has, has it forced you to to come up with new ways to to keep money rolling in and, and keep the business afloat Excuse the pun. Uh, we'll come to you first, Lauren. Um, it's an interesting question, actually. I think that for the rest of the season, as um, as you guys are experiencing and Dan mentioned, it's quite likely that you'll only be able to sail people from your own household for this summer, possibly. Um, I know there's still talk of Cows Week and things going ahead, or some of the big events are hoping to get in, but with social distancing um, in place, and probably no socials, obviously, and that kind of stuff will cancel. But is it possible to run a race? Um, might see the rise of double-handed and solo sailing. I think that uh, anyone who's got a family cruiser, regardless of how big it is or how dilapidated it might have been before the lockdown, will be doing that up and getting it on the water because it'll be, you know, staycations are just going to be the thing, aren't they, this summer, really? Um, and in for Timo, we were a small business before the whole pandemic crisis, and so it was actually something we were thinking about. How do we? How do we diversify? How do we grow? Life jackets are such a niche product, even within sailing, which is a niche industry in itself compared to a lot of sectors um, that people work in across the world. So it's something that we are considering. We had actually introduced a torch and a safety knife um, range earlier this year, which were not Timo made. We went out, we did some research, and we found the most cost-effective torches that we thought were really good quality. We drop tested them, we took them out in the water, we did everything we could to them because there are some phenomenal, really high quality marine torches out there, but they cost an arm and a leg. And we just thought, well, there's, you're just as likely to drop your 200 pound torch as your 50 pound torch or, you know, that kind of thing. And, and none of them float. And if they do float, you're unlikely to go back to them if you're sailing at night. So we decided that we wanted to find um, good products that don't have to be made by us, but that our customers might be genuinely interested in. They're always going to relate to safety in some way. Um, and and barring a huge pivot which is not in our on our 
plan at all, it'll always be sailing. So in that sense, we're looking around and thinking, yeah, what is really interesting? What's new? Uh, but I think that that's kind of how small businesses operate, regardless of whether you're in the middle of something like this or not. I think it's about being able to offer something that makes your customers genuinely go, wow, and we wouldn't try and sell it if it didn't make us do that ourselves. Yeah. I've, I've always been really interested in how you do the safety around wearing a life jacket and how that gets tested out in the first place. Because, you know, for someone that finds themselves out in a force 10 all of a sudden, then you need it to work, but you haven't tried it out in a force 10 before. You don't know if the fluorescent strips work. You know, yeah. how, how does that all get tested out? So Timo life jackets are ISO approved and before you can get that certificate you have to jump through a lot of hoops and really uh, prove that you will meet all of their safety standards. Uh, they do so much to a life jacket sample. Normally what we do is if we have a new model we'll make um, anywhere from 8 to about 16 samples, send those off to the test house, they then have them for a number of months um, and by the time the samples are finished there, they're literally rags coming back in boxes to us, uh, they will put them into an environment chamber and um, expose them to a speeded up weathering process which takes a month and then after that's done, the life jacket's taken out and then, sorry, it's my dog in the background if you heard that, um, they then are... Uh, I've got my cat running around here somewhere as well. So. <laughs> <laughs> they strap um, a 100 kilo mannequin into your sample and um, drop the mannequin through, I think, three meters, something like that. Your life jacket has to survive that. Um, it has to pass a burn test. Uh, it, it, I mean, it's a really long process. As an industry, it has very high uh, barriers to entry, and I think that's actually one of the things that stops innovation happening sometimes because you have to have standards. Absolutely, you know, it's a safety product, and as you said, if you go in at a force ten, you need to know it's going to work because it's only really one opportunity for it. Uh, but at the same time, because those standards very rarely get updated, um, it's quite difficult to bring new things to market. And that's actually why it took us more than four years to get the Bacto system inside our jacket approved, because no one had ever tried to do something like that before. And justifiably, I think all of the test houses kind of freaked out a little bit. Sure. And then for someone coming into the market now looking to buy a life jacket, how regularly should they replace that? Or should they just replace the canister every year or, or whatever it may be, I'm not sure. Yeah, Timo jackets come with a three-year warranty. Um, we recommend that they have an annual service, which can be carried out by Timo or by an approved service centre. Um, we've got, we're increasing the list of service centres all the time, so just look on our website for the most up-to-date list. It doesn't have to come back to us in the UK to be serviced. Um, typically during a service, what they'll do is they'll inflate your jacket and leave it for 24 hours, make sure that it holds pressure and doesn't go down. Um, and then they'll check that the bottle's not corroded, that the firing head's still active, um, and that all the other things you need on your jacket, like your whistle and the light, and it has got a spray hood, that kind of stuff, it'll all be checked off. And if you need to replace any items, um, those, those can generally be replaced and your jacket's good to go again. Um, broadly speaking, I would say that you need to replace your life jacket every seven or eight years. Um, after that, the technology has moved on and even if you've been really careful with your jacket and it looks like new, I just, I feel like you can't really put a price on your own life and it is probably worth investing in it again after that sort of time. Now I know you've um, you've got a lot of trust in the product because some of your marketing is is well you're a family business it is family members sailing and wearing them and um, yeah I, I remember some, when the product was launched uh, a very brave Oscar with a lot of faith in his product was jumping off of a yacht 
in was it January, February into the Solent uh, in front of camera crews and reporters just to sort of get noticed. So um, yeah, hats off. That's off to Oscar for, for that. That was definitely. We wanted to start what we called the Timo Speed League because somebody got in touch with us who sails on a Mod 70 and they said, I'd like to jump off the back of my Mod 70 in a back toe life jacket because, you know, I really trust it too. And we're like, well, that would make a great video, but I, I'm not sure that's really the right message. You know, it's um, safety products are quite difficult because life jackets are fundamentally an unsexy item, right? Nobody really wants to think about it. No one wants to put one on, particularly when it's a beautiful sunny day. So um, from our point of view, we're really passionate about the product, but we also understand that it's not something customers really want to think about very much. So from our point of view as designers, it comes back to how can you make this super unobtrusive? It's going to do its job when you need it, but the rest of the time you don't want to know it's there. You just, you know, you just don't want to think about it. So that's quite a unique design challenge. Can I ask a question to, yeah. uh, to Lauren? Uh, sorry, I've uh, forgotten who's moderating. Mitch, you, right, you go moderating? on then. We'll let you. <laughs> uh, the point that Lauren made just now about uh, unsexy and no one wants to wear them. I mean, around the world, there are more countries than not where people just don't bother wearing any kind of PFDs on the water. Um, they know they should, but they don't because it's hot or whatever and it's not stylish. Um, I have for many, many years received uh, life jackets from another brand that will remain nameless uh, for the purpose of this podcast. Um, and the reason for mentioning that is that I take that with me religiously because I always wear something on the water, regardless whether it's a buoyancy aid or a life jacket, some form of PFD. And I've traveled to lots of different countries. And when I showed that I was wearing this life jacket from another brand and they saw how thin it was, how, how nice it fitted, and how comfortable I felt in it. Um, they actually started asking questions about it, and they ended up buying some of these. Um, and the question, the long way around to the question is, have you considered brand ambassadors in certain key segments of the industry that you can help to um, promote the life jackets at grassroots level to the people that would end up buying them, rather than just traditional marketing is actually say there's a particular team that does Antigua race week that other people will listen to if the local kids that are working on the yachts um, see that then they go and buy that because the local stockist has some or there's a brand ambassador that can get them the link to Lauren and to Oscar um, you know UAE is a classic example um, anywhere hot anywhere Gulf or Asia based um, even Portugal and Spain where people don't really care even though there's a national mandatory law that they should but there's just don't bother and don't get me started on the USA where you have to have a load of foam stuffed under your bow locker and as long as the water police come and check that you've got X amount of number of bits of orange massive foam that look like something from the Titanic then you can carry on driving your boat um, but you don't have to be wearing it and um, there's all of this stuff around and I think you need personally you need brand ambassadors at, at, at the grassroots level um, to be seen wearing the stuff before people kind of look over and touch it and feel it rather than just traditional marketing, have you considered it? I completely agree with you, yeah, absolutely. Uh, particularly with life jackets, actually, because people tend to only buy them probably once every eight years, once a decade, something like that, you're upgrading your life jacket. So when you come to buy a life jacket next time, and you see, oh, there's this new brand name, but I've never seen it before. You know, what's gonna make you go for it if you've never come across a Timo before? Um, sorry, 
Um, and for us, we, my brother and I come from a racing background. And so when we started talking about brand ambassadors originally, our instinct was just to go to races because that's what we knew. So actually we had um, Nikki Kerwin, who I don't know if you know her, but she's um, a pool based sailor. She's done mini transat. Um, she's done lots of different kinds of sailing, really good sailor. She was our first brand ambassador. Um, and then Sam Goodchild, um, who is a Brit, but now doing a lot of sailing in France with ultra high profile teams uh, was yeah. our second brand ambassador and they're very much from the racing community um, and they they were they were really that was really good for us hopefully they really like their product I think they're still wearing it at the moment as far as I know um, but last summer we ended up meeting a young couple who run a YouTube um, channel called Sailing Uma Dan and Kika are their names and we met them just by passing in the crowd at Southampton Boat Show um, and they said oh this is our YouTube channel honestly we've not come across them before and then a few months later they bought two of the jackets via their web via our website um, and once they got them we just shipped them to them as another customer they made a video they really liked them so they decided to make a video and review how the back toe works and they put that on their YouTube channel um, I don't know how many views it's got now but I think it was about I think it was like 200,000 or something last time I checked. Um, and their positive review, uh, which was completely their own opinion, completely authentic, that really was incredible, the response to that. That probably went online last September. Um, and I would say that we still get emails at least every week from people who say, I saw you on Sailing at Uma, I really want to get the same life jacket. Yeah. Um, so I 100% agree with you. I think um, brand ambassadors, but I particularly love the way that happened because it was so organic. They, I had no idea they were going to make the video. Um, since then, they've actually come and done a, a factory tour here and we gave them a free service of their life jackets. So they sailed from the States over to the UK in, in their jackets. And then once they got here, we said, right, okay, come see us. We'll do you, yeah. we'll do you a free service at that point. Um, and they've kind of become friends of the brand, which I feel like is the path we're going to go down um, as much as we can. So. It's, it's based on a genuine passion for the product again as well. I don't think we'll ever be the kind of business that pays somebody to wear our life jacket. I think it's just open to um, people who don't really care ending up in your product. And I'd always rather work with someone like Dan and Kika who were just as passionate about it as we were really. Yeah, yeah it's the balance between the, the cultivated organic, um, you know, someone's own opinion. I mean, we don't pay our brand ambassadors um uh, just to make sure that they really want to be into the brand and it does have a um, a good impact we've started this only about eight nine months ago as far as ambassador ambassadorial um appointments rather than just being a dealer which is of course you're going to promote that brand because you're commercially wanting to make money we needed something that was um better then we've got local sailors and, and my my vision when i took this to the ceos was you know when you learn to drive a car um which is grassroots uh, you tend to go and buy that car that you learned and if you had a good time because you know how to you know how the gears work and all the rest of it where the indicators are and it's that you know how when you learn to sail a boat much like mitch and his sail training program people will go off and tend to buy the boats that they've they've tried so we really approach the grassroots rather than the races because there's there's too much the races are being bombarded with so much marketing in in our world um yeah. by the the high performance classes that we just wanted the the people that hadn't made up their their mind yet and uh, they were more easily influenced by people at, at a level that wasn't unattainable they we didn't want aspirational sailors yeah. telling people who had no chance of being an olympic sailor what boat they should buy we wanted someone like a coach from the club someone with that um authentic um uh, 
presence that would be respected at a level that wasn't unattainable? Yeah, I think also the thing I love about people who've just discovered the sport or the lifestyle, whether they're going to be racers or cruisers, is that they've got such joy and enthusiasm for the things that quite often racers can overlook or just take for granted and be a bit jaded about. And I really love that. Races, yeah. Yeah, it's, I, I just think that that's really yeah. nice and makes them really lovely people to help supply life jackets to. Corrupted by a lifetime in a sport full of rules and politics. Uh, yeah. <laughs> At the bottom, they don't know it's coming. They have no idea. <laughs> Dan, can I actually ask you that question kind of back to you? And how do you open up to a new market when you all of a sudden say, okay, well, we like Germany, we want to expand into Germany. How do you get that to clients in the first place? Uh, it's a tough one. Great question. I mean, Europe um, is, is done and dusted now. I mean, we've only got a couple of places left like Montenegro and uh, uh, I think that's about it as far as normal Europe Europe is concerned um, dealerships but there's a lot of trial and error um, uh, most people that want to be a dealer for us um, try and do it to buy cheap boats so they've got a, a center or they've got a commercial program and they want to buy a fleet of boats at the beginning and they say oh I'm really interested in becoming a dealer because they think it's going to get them lots more discount on the initial batch. Um, and sometimes they talk a good game and through trial and error, we found out that uh, those people never come and buy any boats again and you've just sent them a load of boats at very, very little price, but obviously the bottom line's covered. So you don't, you don't lose, you're not commercially out of pocket, um, but you're spending a year of the contract uh, waiting to open it up, open that territory up again. So we've tried to work out ways of, uh, evaluating and assessing the potential dealers. We get approached all the time. I'm dealing at the moment with three entities in India. We don't have a formal dealer in India. We've sold direct um, because it's a large country. We don't have a formal dealer in China. We've got about five or six individual entities that buy boats at export terms, but they've never signed a contract to, to kind of lock them in place as a dealer because it's just too big a marketplace. But for countries like, I don't know, Vietnam, Thailand, um, South Korea, um, Uruguay, Panama, uh, Antigua, St. Kitts and Nevis, you know, big countries, small islands and everything in between Vanuatu and the South Pacific, you kind of, you get a sense of who the people are that want to become the dealer. Are they a one, one person band uh, or are they a, a chandri? Are they a, a sailing school? Who is it? Is it the National Sailing Federation? We deal a lot with the world sailing members uh, for that country, like the RYA is the National Sailing Federation for the UK. We deal with a lot of those counterparts um, and they deal because they deal with the clubs in their countries. Um, so those are quite easy because we think that they're the right kind of people to promote uh, the, the boats to all of the sailors in their country. But if we've got someone in Algeria that says, I'm from a club and I've got 10,000 members and I could do this, this and this, that's great. That's great publicity. But in reality, when you say, well, how many boats are you going to buy? How much money are you going to invest? What's your three to five year, six year, eight year, whatever plan? And you get back a one line email saying, what's your export rate? Could you go another couple of percent lower and we might buy five boats? You start to figure out that they're not really um, what we would see as someone who's investing in the future. Now, we look at a business plan, we evaluate the kind of marketplace, uh, we have a massive network already, so we kind of ask our, um, our other people in our network if they've ever heard of these people before, and chances are, if you're in the industry in a particular segment, 
um, or sector, um, then you've heard of most of the big players before. And if someone says, never heard of these guys, they've never even been a blip on the radar, that's a bit of an alarm bell for us to say um, they're not the right ones. We never discount anybody. Um, it's always possible. And I've learned um, from when I was in the UK, I'm, I'm based in Europe, I live in Europe now and do the international stuff. But when I was working in the UK for RS, doing fleet sales, uh, looking after all the sailing clubs. There was a, a place in just north of the M25, Stanborough, just outside Stanborough, a little, oh, I can't remember what it was called, a Stanborough Lakes Water Sports Centre. Anyway, I, I remember it to this day because this tiny little puddle, everybody in my team and my boss said, don't go there, stop going there, stop driving there. They're just time wasters. They're never going to buy any boats. And I kept going there. And every time I was passing on the A1, I'd stop in and say hi and keep driving. And then one day they rang up and placed an order for £150,000 worth of books and said that they'd spent six years looking for a, um, a local education authority um, grant uh, to develop a water sports centre for a catchment of fairly wealthy North London, blah, blah. Anyway, the story went on. And they ordered far too many boats for the size of this puddle. And everyone in the, in the office was like, what on earth was that all about? I said, well, you, you never write someone off and that's just not who we are. We don't, we don't ever kind of cut someone off and say, you're never going to buy any boats. So you have to keep learning. And I think we'll keep making mistakes. I think we've done it recently with people that have ordered something and then gone completely quiet, ignored all the emails. They've not set a website up. They've not done anything. So very long answer again. And Mitch will know that I tend to like talking. So um, apology for too much waffle, but you trial and error, you'll never be the best person to, to get it right every time. Um, we reduce the length of the contract so that when someone isn't the right person, we're not waiting and waiting and waiting. And the kind of opt out clauses are more robust now to say, enjoy your boats um, and we part on good terms, but we now need someone who's going to do what we need them to do better. And sometimes you land on your feet and you find the absolute genius right person straight away. Like Australia, we have the most epic dealer who's more of a distributor than a dealer who is just an incredible guy that, you know, if he, if he left tomorrow, Australian export of RS boats would kind of fold up overnight. So sometimes you have to really embrace them and just say, what can we do to hold on to you for longer? And then going back to that, I suppose that kind of builds on the class associations that you were talking about before as well. And how is that run centrally? Is that centrally from RS itself or is it individual nations that kind of take control and say, okay, we're going to, we're going to do this association and we're going to run a separate set of events now and then or I don't know, how, no, how does that work for you? Yeah, we're different to the other manufacturers. Um, we, we, probably shouldn't say out loud that we kind of control it from within because I mean, yes, it out loud. <laughs> the, <laughs> this is going uh, to what? Um, uh, the class associations at national level need to run themselves. Um, there's nothing in the, in the guidelines to say internationally that the international class association can't have a very close relationship with the manufacturer. Um, and ever since the beginning, RS has, um, worked so closely with the class associations. The secretary of the international class associations for most of our classes um, is an ex, uh, is the parent of a number of ex uh, RS boat sailors. They've come up through the ranks. Um, we tend to kind of keep it very family based, going right back to the beginning, what Laura was saying. They're people that have come using our products, they've come up through, they've sold all our boats, they understand the ethos, the family. Each class association has a builder's representative sitting on the international steering group, the kind of committee that runs it. Um, but to be honest, we kind of, not dictate, but we heavily 
lead the class associations um, as to where we want the events to be um, and the kind of the events that we want to run um, because we're connected to world sailing. Um, the international classes are, it's our responsibility to grow them, uh, to, to sustain our status as a world sailing international class for the 100, the Terra, the Fever, the RS Aero. We're applying for the RS 21, so we need to get the spread of boats around the world to the right level for world sailing to be able to then ratify it as an international class. We've learned how to do that, and so we, we give that information to the classes the events need to be fun, they need to be family uh, oriented. So we demand and we, we tell our classes that we want the terrors to sail with the fevers uh, or we want the fevers and the terrors to sail with the arrows so that mum and dad can go out on the arrows uh, while the kids are sailing the fevers so that the whole family can come to a big regatta and we can have a world championship in a, in a junior class happening at the same time as mummy or daddy or both are out in the RS 400, 500 or aero, whatever it might be, racing, and they all come back off the water, they celebrate together, there's activities for adults, for kids. Not every class is like that. Some classes like the 200, the 500, um, you get quite a mix of, of boy, girl, male, female, husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, um, and some of the parties are, uh, are quite legendary, so it's not the right event to add a junior class to go to Lake Garda when the parents are you know, partying till four o'clock in the morning in a big tent um, and not looking after the kids. So we, we know this and we know how the, the sailors work. So we tend to guide them. Um, and that makes life so much easier for us because rule changes, you know, the manufacturer can say, look, there's problems happening with the boat in this area. Um, spreader mast, uh, mast spreader stuff isn't working. We need to go to a different provider. Um, if you're an international class that's not connected to the manufacturer, and we know this from companies that will remain nameless where the class fights the manufacturer and they go to court and they waste a lot of money that benefits neither side. We don't have that. We tell the class, uh, we've got a problem with this side of manufacturing. We've identified it. We're changing it. Can you update the rules so that we're not, it's not a monopoly. It just, there's no one else involved. So it's under the same umbrella. It's, it's all of the stuff happening and it's done for the good of moving the class forward. Um, like when we did a new hull for the, the Terra, we didn't change the speed, we just changed a few uh, issues with styling and with, with stuff that needed to be done on the top sides. And when we told everybody that the underneath was not changing and the sail was staying the same, we were just changing some styling to make it a bit more, um, the longevity of the boat a bit better. The class said, fantastic, right, I want to trade in my old boat and buy a new boat. And that benefits, sorry, again, long answer, but that benefits the, the retail side for new sailors, new families that want cost price secondhand or sorry pre-owned as we now call them pre-owned boats that are cheaper uh, than new boats so when a racer trades in their terror um, for a new mold a new style one much like the rs500 we did the same those secondhand or pre-owned boats then go into the marketplace and get people that either couldn't afford a new boat um, previously or had been waiting for an opportunity to also add another boat to a fleet that they were developing at home with uh, kids sailing different boats. So we're, we're then increasing participation again in a different way by by doing that. So, um, yeah, well, I don't know where I'm going now, but I could carry on, but I'll stop. <laughs> Sorry. I'm going to change. Everyone just says... Only RS I've ever sailed is an RS 200 and did the nationals in it quite a while ago now, and uh, but loved it and have, and have friends who would never sail anything else in zingies. And uh, I didn't realise that it was quite so, um, that there was such a strategy behind it in terms of involving the whole family. It's really nice to hear. Yeah, the 200 is is the most legendary class out of all of the, two, out of all of the RS boats. 
Um, I was always too too big and never the right size for a 200. I opted for the 400, mm. which always bit me in the backside because it's the only boat in the range that nobody can keep under control. It just has too much in reserve. But the 200s, um, having seen them in action on a number of events, um, that was that was a kind of a model that needed to be replicated. The the social side of it, the way that the relationships were made, families sailed together. There are now 200 sailors that are coming back to us buying 200s for their kids that have got to the right age and are also sailing what mum and dad are sailing. And mum and dad met at one of these legendary socials uh, on the 200 scene back in the day. I don't know if you remember, I don't know if it was part of when you were sailing, but the Fat Face used to sponsor a huge circuit in the UK. Yeah. That was just epic, absolutely yeah. epic. And, and managing that was... I wouldn't say it was strategic um, because it was such a family run thing. Like when you throw a really good family party, you kind of know the people that are coming. And so you put the right thing on. I think when you're a class association that's fully commercial and is trying to pay uh, a secretary and, and, and pay for a marketing uh, person and they're just chasing the sponsors, they're not really in touch with their sailors necessarily, even though they say they're a class representing them, that they're, they're kind of looking after themselves within the association and then yeah. passing on what they think is the right thing. But RS had the marketing team in-house, had the promotion in-house, brought in Volvo and all the sponsors in-house because the RS team were all dressed in fat face. So we brought them in because it was a brand that was already involved with the company. And we didn't change any of, of how the, the events were run. They were always run for the people that were taking, play, taking part, the participants. And that's a crucial difference that I, I would tell everybody. It's, it's, it's a lifestyle, it's more than just the sailing because we understand the say laws. It's not we're just selling a piece of equipment and then we forget about them and say, right, onwards to the next person. They, they stay in the family, they buy boats for their kids. They recommend, it's just a, a really intertwined synergy between the customer and the, the, the company. Yeah, I can vouch for what Dan's saying there. I remember my first RS200 Nationals was the first uh, first Nationals an RS class had reached 100 boats. So I won't say how long ago that was, um, but the class the class celebrated by um, changing the venue of the prize giving to a nightclub. So that was, that was a good effort, yeah. That, they were fat face days as well. Yeah, those milestones are pretty cool. I mean, we, we celebrated 200 boats at an RS Fever World last year in Italy. Um, and yeah, the Fever sold, what, nearly, what, 9,000 boats or something crazy like that. But to, you don't think 200 is, is actually a big number, but it, to get 200 double-handed youth boats to come to a, a world championship event um, is quite a big deal to sort of make that happen and to provide charter boats and everything else. So these milestones are still happening at 25 years on from, from the sort of the first few boats. Yeah. Hopefully we'll see more of those milestones. Yeah, definitely. And, and on that sort of optimistic um, look ahead, um, Dan, my, our, our relationship's built on, on the number of um, RS boats um, Doskers invested in and, and are performing well. And, um, Not just that, it's brought on Prosecco as well. Uh, yeah, we well, won't mention that. Um, <laughs> I'm still waiting for uh, more than a free pen. I've only had ever had one free pen from Dan, and I think I've bought maybe 18 to 20 boats from this man so uh, he, he brags about customer care but i'm not sure about that so if you have to give people freebies in order for them to buy your kit then then they're doing the wrong. <laughs> all jokes aside the, the, the equipment's no peer pressure coming from mitch here at all <laughs> what's this mitch? Yeah, the, 
<laughs> all jokes aside, the kit's performing very well. Is that all you want? Is that all you <laughs> that want? That is what we want. That is definitely what we want. That would work that's so well in Dubai. Dan that's all you want. Pink RS sailing sunglasses. No, that's thank you. That's all you want. <laughs> they um, are so spicy. Made, made in China special so you can carry on buying boats. <laughs> Done. Done. Look, we, our, our boats have got to survive quite hot summers, um, over 50 degrees uh, 45 to 50 degrees in, in the heat. So, um, you know, our, our, some of our training boats are now in sort of going into their second or third summer. So the, for us, that's, that's a key element and build quality is, is essential. And, and we definitely, um, uh, our sailing school does give, give the fleet a hard, hard time. Um, and we've also got, um, our RS Aeros that we fitted foils to, and that's the, they're the base of our foiling school. So um, the products perform very well, and we're very proud to to, to advertise that we have a, a training fit fleet of RS boats. And, Thank you. And Lauren, um, we, we've been talking because I'm very, very keen to get your life jackets out to um, sell on behalf of Dubai Offshore Sailing Club to our members. Um, the clues in the name to my offshore sailing club. We yeah. we we go over the horizon, and um, there's not only um, uh, a very competitive race community at the club, but there's some um, fantastic cruising going on, and it's it's interesting to hear you sort of looking at the cruisers, and particularly in these times of of lockdown and restriction, that's the it's cruising that's probably going to make up a large percentage of. Of people hitting the water now, so um, we we hope uh, when um, when the situation here is easing and and, and we're sailing more that we can um, talk more about getting your product out to our, our club shop. So um, yeah. yeah, and it, interestingly, you're, you're, we didn't know about that connection that you, Chris was on the water on on that that fateful race that um, yeah, tragically know. led to the development of your product. So we. Yeah. Um, yeah, we we hope that we'll be uh, seeing your product in the shop soon. And but send them some pens, Lauren. Send them some pens. Job done. <laughs> in the meantime, <laughs> in the meantime, anyone's free to to contact um, both RS Sailing and, and Timo directly if and visit their websites. Guys, it's fantastic to hear that you're you're getting through um, a pretty torrid time for a lot of businesses um, especially small ones uh, Lauren fantastic news that you've got um, staff returning from furlough um, that's really positive um, news so I was, I was pleased to hear that um, both both putting out some very interesting marketing and, and digital content so that's really really good to follow and it's also good I was, I was surprised to hear actually how unaffected the supply chain's been that would have been one of my concerns for uh, for your businesses so that's also good news um yeah we're, we're both very Can thankful I, for your time this evening and for sharing some I just add something Mitch sorry to yeah, sorry. I didn't want half interrupting you i mean you're complimenting lauren and i which is lovely and i'm really grateful for that and, and always could strive but to be uh, coming back to you not wanting to um to be too kind of over it's not like an oscars award ceremony where everyone thanks each other but we deal with a lot of clubs a lot of people around the world um and it is quite refreshing sometimes to deal with an organization where not only do people answer the phone and if it's not the person you're after it's someone else that will put you in contact um the infrastructure the organization the staff when you turn up they're all friendly they will talk to you um they don't just say oh there's the guy with the manufacturing logo on we're going to you know treat him in this particular way and dosk is is quite 
uh, a unique club and I wanted to compliment you and your team and pass that on to the Commodore and the rest of your uh, senior management. You know, we do see a lot, the commercial world sees a lot more than people trapped in a bubble like you are sometimes uh, when you're focused on what you're doing in your little sphere of influence. So well done to Dosk, awesome what you're doing as well. Um, and you really are model for more than just what's going on in the UAE, but internationally. So I'm really proud to be associated. I'm sorry you don't get all the freebies that you want, but um, I'd, I'd love to see this continuing the relationship because you help us learn a lot about what we need to do because you're so open in, in how you want us to work with you. So thank you. No worries. And um, let us just say best best of luck. And um, you know, you guys are going into season now in in Europe and the UK, and and hopefully the the easing of restrictions promotes more boating in a safe way, and uh, and your products fly off the shelves. So thank you very much for, for joining us this evening. Thank you. Great to meet you, Boris. Take care. All the best. Bye. Bye. <laughs> I want a pair of those glasses though. <laughs> Sign out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Chris, uh, an interesting discussion this evening with our two industry insiders. What were the key uh, key points you picked up on? Yeah, great to hear from Lauren and Dan tonight. Uh, both obviously local companies in Britain that have started from the ground up, telling us. Uh, how they are managing with the current situation and also what their plans are for the future. And it does seem like DOSC is certainly going to be uh, joining with that as well. So that is an exciting time ahead to look forward to. Yeah, large, largely positive, which was good in, in this time where it's quite easy to, to, you know, to take a pessimistic view. So um, overwhelmingly, it was, it was positive news um both companies having a real taking a real pragmatic view on things and and looking ahead at the future so that was that was great news and we two two good brands that i i hope we will see for many years to come yeah both very very interesting people um and it was great to hear what they had to say uh, a lot of passion a lot of passion a lot of passion, like because we're like, yeah we're going to hear that so that's good and when there's an opportunity for pink sunglasses for as freebies then this is this is even more positive i think oh, so a good a good evening for you then you <laughs> there's <Yeah>. nothing promised <laughs> <laughs> excellent right let's wrap it up and uh and we look forward to bringing you episode four and uh i hope you enjoyed tonight's podcast Good night, Chris. Good night, Mitch.